How you doing, kids? And thanks for letting the 114th episode of Scoring the Movies take you from Boston to New York and back to Boston again. Ever since June 2018, we've been taking a look at sports movies from days of yore, and heads up, we spoil. I'm the pot-bellied ball player who's generous with his money. No, I'm not. Who loves neighborhood kids. No, I don't. And not so subtly yearns for a dame and a family. Nah, I had the dame. Well, the wife. Ryan Ellis. And here's the power hitter who has a big appetite, calls everyone dad, and likes to hit home runs. Jidge, Chris DiGregorio. Thanks, Ryan. I was hoping you'd give me the jumpin' Chris DiGregorio moniker, but nobody's offered me any more money to go to another <laughs> podcast yet, so I haven't earned the jumpin' yet. We're both Babe Ruth in that intro. Yeah, that's right. And you're technically 0 for 3 in that intro, so you've already struck out for the podcast, and we haven't even started yet. I'm going to talk about a lot of Babe Ruth real-life numbers. I'll do one quickly right now, since you just said that. Yeah. So the last game that's portrayed, that he ever played, in this movie it's portrayed, it's the last game, where he has the three home runs for the Boston Braves when he's way past his prime. They suggest that's it. He quits. No. He played the next day. He went 0 for 4, struck out three times. Yeah. Well, <laughs> this movie felt like somebody who took every little bit of lore or legend about Babe Ruth and mm-hmm. cobbled a movie together about it, but never even bothered digging into the reality of any of it, which is fine. But don't open your movie by saying everything in this movie really happened because it absolutely did not happen mm-hmm. the way this movie portrays. So if you're going to set yourself up as a true to life biopic, then be true to life or be a stupid movie centered around Babe Ruth, but you're making it more like a Disney fied movie appealing to the kids and here's all the legends about the man you condense stories you have to in a biopic yeah but i don't even feel like they condense stories i feel like they gave us one-off things like here's the two home runs that he hit for a kid here's the called shot to center field like you said here's the three home runs and he walked off that in some instances maybe happened they still managed to get it wrong it didn't happen almost ever the way the movie portrays and we've talked about other movies where it's just blatantly obvious that the movie makers didn't even bother to become familiar with the sport in the barest sense. This movie was not that bad. Mm -hmm. If you had read any reputable source about any one of these things, you could have fixed all of this stuff and it would have had no impact on the story. It just would have been accurate instead of a disney version of it. And I don't think Disney made this, by the way. I'm using it as a... No, I get you. Universal made the movie, by the way. It came out 30 years ago on April 17th, 1992. It didn't connect with the masses. The movie wasn't even playing in theaters anymore in late May. So it lasted about a month and a half. I remember seeing this as a kid, but I remember watching it on television, not in the movie theater. I have no recollection of this ever being advertised in the movie theater, but I remember it being on TV a lot. Well, it failed so much, they just said, we're not going to keep on promoting this movie. Let's pull it out of theaters because it wasn't making much money. Yeah, that makes sense. And John Goodman wasn't exactly box office, nor was the director Arthur Hiller, but they weren't nobodies either. Hiller directed Love Story. 22 years earlier, he directed a lot of films, had a long career, won a Gene Herschelt Humanitarian Award, the Oscars at one point. (laughs) Okay. So must have been a popular, well-liked guy in the industry. 
And Goodman was starring in movies, but also especially on Roseanne on TV. That's right, yeah. So you think this movie would get a little bit more publicity into the baseball season. It came out when the baseball season started, but then when it was about a month and a half in the baseball season, this movie's gone already that fast. A League of Their Own came out the same year, and that was a success and a far better film. Yeah, way better movie. One of the things that plays into this is, as we've talked about a lot, it feels like sport movies that are sports-centric, and this movie, for all of its flaws, is definitely baseball-centric. Oh, yeah. And we've covered lots of movies that are nominally about sport, but the crux of the plot is a personal story of some kind. Last podcast, North Dallas 40 was about that. There's plenty of football, but it's not really about football. That's right. It's about the business of football. That's a good example. It feels like the movie studios don't put a ton of effort into promoting these kinds of movies unless it's like a secretariat or something where they're like, okay, here's an Oscar movie. And maybe it's just because they know this is a niche film. It's not going to generate a ton of box office, so let's not waste too much time. I don't know what the reviews were at the time. Not good. I'm sure Ebert and Siskel or whoever wrote a review about it when it released were probably not terribly thrilled with it because it felt like, to me, there wasn't a lot of story or character development. It just felt like the same sad sack character going from one legendary event to another within this storied career. It's sad that you are right to call Babe Ruth sad sack, but the way he's portrayed in this movie, that's accurate. And that's the other element of it, because as a man, I think if you read about him or watch any biography about him... Larger Than Life was made for this guy. Yeah. That expression, designed for George Herman Ruth. But this movie, if you were a casual fan, you'd wonder, why? Not quite the same as I felt when we watched Ali, but not too far off, where we talked about Muhammad Ali is one of the most charismatic, larger-than-life sports figures ever. Will Smith was one of the most charismatic, larger-than-life personalities on the big screen, and yet he seemed to tone himself down for that performance. But we did talk in that podcast about how maybe Muhammad Ali, when we saw him in public, and that's all we would have ever seen, was putting on, and I'm not saying it was a phony, but was putting on a bit of an act. I don't think Babe Ruth was. In fact, he might have been toning down the way he really wanted to be for the public. We know John Goodman can play outgoing, big, personable, and we see glimpses of that here and there in this movie. He's a man with flaws. He's a man with demons, sure. But he was also very well known to be a very generous, outgoing person. The kids loved him, and he at least pretended to like them back. I think he actually did like them back. All indications are he legitimately loved kids. And that's portrayed okay in this movie. But even that seems like it could have been more amped up that this guy is so beloved because of the kids as much as the adults. Yeah. And that's in here, but not all that well. We immediately get him dumped at the industrial school at Mm -hmm. age seven or eight or whatever. Seven. Mom's died and dad's never seen again. And that should have been a moment that we stayed with, with a little bit more scrutiny so that later on we can understand A, why he's got this, I need to take everything out of life I possibly can attitude. And B, why he loved kids so much, because frankly, that would make sense, right? If you grew up without any real parental figures, I think we're meant to interpret brother Matthias as being the pseudo father figure that Babe Ruth did look up to. Matthias saved him basically from probably being a true delinquent. And the early introduction we get to Matthias is he knocks young George off his feet and then it's uh, excuse me or whatever, but he cares about the kids and we never see him be abusive. We just see him be stern because he wants them to become functional adults. And by a certain point in the movie, we get that implication from Babe when he's talking on the phone that, yeah, he cares about this brother almost like a pseudo-father. But I think if they really leaned into that a little bit more, we would get more depth out of the character. 
if they strayed away from the constant woe is me element of Babe Ruth. The poster suggests it's a good fun time with movies. That's also true. Yeah, when you see that now. Giant smile, he's holding the kid yeah. in his arms. It's Babe Ruth. Hey, open up that yeah. Zevia over there. I dried my mouth out with my ranting about that. <laughs> Mr. Clean, yet again, you should have had a big sloppy beer for this episode, if nothing else, because it is Babe Ruth. I'm okay, let me do the nutshell, by the way, since oh, yeah. I said that, suggesting that this man is always drinking and also always eating. So, the babe, in a nutshell, fatty, fat, fat, fat. Could this movie, more so in the first 30 minutes or so, make it any more clear that this guy is apparently remarkably obese? Okay, John Goodman was definitely overweight, if not obese. I like John Goodman, but he's miscast in this movie. He was only cast, I think, because he was fat. I'm fat too, so I can say it. You can, I'll say it. He was overweight, he was fat. Okay, for a guy in professional baseball, professional athlete, Babe Ruth was fat. But you've seen pictures, if you've paid any attention to this, he wasn't huge. He wasn't even really all that big. And you see early pictures of him, but the movie suggests that he was huge when he was seven, and he was huge when he was 37. We have the internet now to look at those things, but they're paid to prepare a movie. And they didn't do any research on some of the things. They did on a lot of things, obviously, because the movie's not way off. But about that, I'm quoting The Simpsons, fatty, fat, fat, fat. In addition to the sad sack element, I felt like that was overdone as well. Part of it, I think, is the era in which Babe Ruth lived and played. And to me, I think about President Taft, right? And this goes back even further than Babe Ruth. To this day, when you hear the word Taft, Taft, you old dog, you think about the fattest president in American history. Well, at the time... For 150 years or however long it's been, he went down in history as this enormously fat guy. But meanwhile, Donald Trump weighed something like 40 pounds more than Taft ever did. People ragged on his weight a little bit, but not anywhere to the same extent. And I think the same thing was probably true in the 20s. So when Ruth was playing, they had candy. We hear him talking about Baby Ruth chocolate bars and stuff. The Baby Ruth. Obviously, he ate his fair share of food. But I think Hot dogs, hot dogs, hot dogs. Yeah, we weren't quite yet at the era of easy excess and fast food and just candy everywhere that we would get to as North American society until after World War II. So I think obesity... Or just body size generally. It was harder to achieve. <laughs> was harder to achieve. I guess that's what I looked <laughs> at. had to work at it. <laughs> so all that to say, yeah, if you look at pictures of Babe Ruth now, he wasn't as big as Goodman portrays him to be. But I can understand why he had this little reputation as being overweight for a baseball player. But they didn't have to play it up the way they did, especially, like you said, the first 30 minutes or so. The kid is dropped off at this industrial school for delinquent kids immediately were inundated with a solid five minutes of what you just described. Yes, we get it. He's a slightly overweight seven-year-old for crying out loud. And when he's playing baseball, he has a horrible swing on the first pitch, but the second pitch, he's a natural baby. (laughs) Did you laugh out loud the way I did when his hands are like six to eight inches apart in the bat? When he walks up to the plate, Brother Matthias has to tell him to pick up the stick because he doesn't even know what the bat is meant to do Mm -hmm. in the context of like a baseball game. But then Matthias cracks some sort of remark about young Babe wanting to go deep on the great brother Matthias, and Babe Ruth gets pissed off. Yeah, you're right. By the second swing, the camera cuts in close on his hands, and you see him bring his hands down into a proper grip, and then it pans down to his feet, and he digs in like a batter in the batter's box. This is a kid who's making his second swing ever. He doesn't know any of these gestures. It's one thing to be unnatural, but come on. Yeah. Well, Babe Ruth, by the way, said The Natural. He is portrayed in that movie, not literally. It's the whammer, but it's supposed to be a play in Babe Ruth. I just watched The Pride of the Yankees again last night. He's actually in that. He's one of the top-billed actors. He has quite a few scenes, especially early on. 
There was the Babe Ruth story in 1948. That wasn't him. I think it was William Bendix. The 1991 TV movie was Stephen Lang. So the guy from Avatar, the sneering, snarling general, played Babe Ruth in 1991. And I thought that was a pretty solid movie. Pete Rose plays Ty Cobb in that as well. And it wasn't even two hours long because, of course, of commercials. And then he's also portrayed in The Sandlot, which we covered a couple years ago. That's, that's right. the guy who was the first baseman Field of Dreams. Art Lafleur plays him in The Sandlot. Oh, that's right. He did, didn't he? I kind of like the Art Lafleur look for Babe Ruth. I agree with you that Goodman is probably miscast in this role. He has it in him as an actor, certainly, to, if given the direction, to give it the life and the, Absolutely. And the charisma. It could have been great. Could have been great. He still was miscast physically because he's yes. way too big. But otherwise, yes, he could have been a good choice. And I also feel like if this was a movie that was remade today, I think you get... Christian Bale. <laughs> as... He just start eating last year. <laughs> or you get Christian Bale jacked as he was in Batman Begins or something, just taking a whole new spin on Babe Ruth. No, but you probably get two different actors to play Babe Ruth. Who do you want, kid? <laughs> Call me Judge. Jump a Joe. You've been my teammate for many years. Oh, what I wouldn't give to hear Babe Ruth with a Christian Bale voiceover. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, what the hell was I saying? (laughs) Well, one quick thing I say, Jidge, by the way, it's just another way of saying George. Oh, because every time Jumpin' Joe said, hey, Jidge, I just thought that was supposed to be a terrible accent of some kind. Brother Matthias calls him that, too. Oh, I didn't pick up on that. I'm pretty sure I heard him say Jidge. And then Keed, I remember Ruth would say Keed. I assume that just means kid, but in a weird way of saying it. Oh, that's what I was going to say. He said kid. You have super young Babe Ruth when he's in the industrial school. You have retirement age Babe Ruth when he's 40, 41. Mm -hmm. And then you have him leaving the industrial school at 19, which was weird because they said until the age of majority, which I thought would have been 18, but apparently he was still there at 19. And that was in Baltimore. He was born and raised in Baltimore. Mm-hmm. Yep. So he goes to the minor league Baltimore Orioles at that time as a 19-year-old. And John Goodman, trying to play 19, yeah. looked goofy as hell because they caked so much makeup on him to try to give him a youthful look. His hair is a little different. <laughs> they almost but... gave him like the curly forelock because they uh-huh. gave him like the childish look. You couldn't find a reasonably close approximation of John Goodman that was 18 or 19 and slightly overweight to cast in this role because he's not in a ton of scenes at that age right he goes to the orioles he literally walks out of the school and we don't see him ever play for the orioles the first thing we see is him playing for boston after they've called him up from the minor leagues and it very quickly fast forwards through the first couple years of his career so you don't need that young version of ruth very long but it would have made it look a lot less weird than 40 year old john goodman trying to play 19 year old babe ruth (laughs) Let me tell you about the Rotten Tomatoes numbers on this film. 47% of critics like the film. That's it. 5 out of 10 is the average. There are 38 reviews on the site, but only 37% of audiences. And it was 70th that year at the box office, 1992. White Man Can't Jump. We covered that way back, one of our first ever movies. It was 16th. Mighty Ducks, that was 31st. That was our first ever movie on this channel. And Mr. Baseball, the same year as this movie, was 63rd. And the guy who plays Lou Gehrig, what's his name again? Michael McGrady was also in Mr. Baseball. I don't know who he was, but he was in Mr. Baseball. (laughs) Lou Gehrig's barely portrayed in this movie. I mentioned I watched Pride of the Yankees, where, of course, Gary Cooper plays him, and he's in, I guess, every scene, and then Ruth's in that movie quite a bit, too. The babe's not the devil, but Lou Gehrig is the angel. He's the perfect guy. And Bev and I were talking about this an hour or two ago. In all these years, for there to be no stories that Lou Gehrig really was secretly this or this or this, he really must have been a Boy Scout. 
And Babe Ruth wasn't the devil, but he really did almost everything wrong you can imagine, including not taking care of himself. And yet the black ink on this guy, he's like Barry Bonds. You go on baseball reference, I say black ink because they highlight when somebody's a leader that year in that category. Yeah. So he hit nearly twice as many dingers in his first year with the Yankees when he got traded to them, or I guess sold, as he had the prior year in Boston when he hit a bunch of home runs. And of course, this guy was a pitcher first with Boston and won world championships as a pitcher with Boston. Right. He led the league in home runs 12 times. He led in RBIs five times, in runs eight times. He won a batting title in 1924. One of my favorite numbers in the history of baseball, though, is when you do the 100-plus RBIs, meaning so you have maybe 40 home runs, but 147 RBIs. You drove yourself in 40 times, but then you drove in somebody else 107 times. Right. He did that six times, and he nearly did it twice more. Although Lou Gehrig had 100-plus RBIs nine times and came close to doing it another three. So he was even more impressive. And, of course, he batted after Ruth in the batting order. But that's something else. The year that Ruth set the record that finally Maris broke and now Aaron Judge... We record this the day after he tied Roger Maris' 61 home runs. So by the time this gets posted, Judge will certainly pass Maris for the American League record. But the year that Ruth hit 60 home runs, he had 165 RBIs. Yeah. Now, we know Ruth struck out a lot, 1,330 times in his career. But he also had 700 more career walks than he had strikeouts, which is something you see sometimes these days. Juan Soto, for example, does that. But not that many people do. There's so many strikeouts. Even if you walk a lot, you're going to strike out more than you walk, generally, if you're a slugger. He's the career leader in war, so wins above replacement, by nearly 20 points. That's partly because of the pitching. As you look at position players, then I think Bonds has him by a tick. But when you include his pitching, then he's number one by 20 points. Walter Johnson is number two all time. Oh, really? Yeah. And he won only one MVP award because it wasn't standard back then. It was a new thing in the era of Ruth and Gehrig being these major stars. And he didn't even win that in the year he hit 54, 59, or 60 home runs. (laughs) Garrick, I think, won in 27. I believe it was Garrick that won the year that Ruth hit the 60 home runs. He also stole more than 10 bases five different times. So fatty, fat, fat, fat could steal bases at a pretty good clip back then. And he had 21 sacrifice bunts in the year in which he hit 49 home runs. Everybody bunted back then. I looked at Garrick's numbers, too. He had a lot of sacrifice bunts his whole career, as did Ruth. We're not talking about one or two years all through their history. There are bunts, generally speaking, a lot of them, in fact. He was also on seven world champions... He won three with Boston, four with the Yankees, and in the World Series, he had 326 and had 15 home runs. And of course, this is long before the championship series or now the wild card. As a pitcher, his lifetime ERA was 228, and his ERA in the three World Series games with the Red Sox, only three games, not series, but three games he pitched with the Red Sox in the World Series, his ERA was 0.87. So when people say he's the greatest player of all time, it is hard to dispute it. Yeah. He really pretty much did go from being a pitcher to an outfielder and didn't have the overlap that Shohei Otani has now. Otani's doing it at the same time at a level that even Ruth didn't do. But whenever Otani's mentioned these days, it's always the last person that did this was Babe Ruth. To my mind, he is the greatest player of all time. And you reeled off all those stats. It's really hard to compare era to era. Didn't play black players, didn't play at night, didn't travel west of St. Louis, never on an airplane. There's a lot of reasons why the game is probably harder now than it ever was in that era. For instance, one of the stats that is slightly misleading is the walk to strikeout thing that you described. Okay. He struck out a lot, but like you said, he walked 700 more times than he struck out over his career. But the strikeouts in that era of baseball were far lower in general than they are today. One of the reasons for that is because pitchers pitched a lot longer into games than they do today. Of course, they didn't pitch as hard. Spin rates were lower, like all that stuff, too. 
One of my favorite Babe Ruth stories is, and this goes to your point about him being a pitcher initially with Boston, in the first World Series that he pitched with Boston, he pitched a 14-inning game, all 14 innings, to win the game. And one of the reasons why they could go that deep into games is because, as we hear from Jumpin' Joe, the game was not based around strikeouts and home runs as it is today. Back then, it was pitch to contact a little bit, get weak contact, right? Get outs on ground balls or pop-ups. And from a batter's perspective, it was hit them where they ain't. So aside from the overwhelming stats, I think one of the reasons for me to call him the greatest ever is because he changed the game. Right. And he changed the game in a number of different ways, but most particularly is the power element. He went from being a pitcher where he hit like two home runs, four home runs, then he had 11 home runs, then he had something like 24 home runs. It was 29 his last year with Boston. Last year with Boston. The next most prolific home run hitter in all of baseball hit something like 11 home runs. Right? Mm-hmm. So even at 24 home runs, he was doubling up the next most powerful hitter. And the next year, he nearly doubled his own total because that yep. was when he hit 54 his first year with the Yankees. As a guy that was such a great pitcher, decided he wanted to hit more, revolutionized the game and did it while, I'm going to air quotes this, playing the game the right way, right? Because like you said, it wasn't like he was up there, the Ichiro, oh God, I really butchered that, the Ichiro (laughs) of his era, where Ichiro was accused of being just interested in racking up stats for himself. Michiro, as you've called him before. Yeah. So that was never, as far as I'm aware, an accusation leveled at Ruth. He was playing the game the way he thought it was the right way to play to win. And part of that in his mind just happened to be hitting home runs. But like you said, he would sack bunt. He would steal bases. And he was a good fielder. This movie could have been called, and it could have been nutshelled, Conundrum, the movie. Because he is a conundrum. Because <laughs> the fact he's not in Lou Gehrig's shape and yet to do all these things. He's out till, what is it, 3 in the morning. It might have been Jumpin' Joe Dugan, but somebody he roomed with in this era said, I don't room with Babe Ruth. I room with his bag. His <laughs> luggage. So that means that Ruth is out carousing every night. And Ruth was married to Helen for a lot of his career. Yep. And we portrays. He was cheating on her, specifically with Claire. So he's with Trini Alvarado for a lot of the movie, married to her. But he's with, later on, Kelly McGillis. The movie suggests, and I think in reality it's pretty clear, it was true that he was with so many women through his whole career. He was out doing these things till the middle of the night. And this is back in an era when you only played day games, too. So if you're out till 3 in the morning... And then you got to get to the ballpark at, I'm guessing, at least 11, if not sooner. The movie shows a few times. He shows up hungover or still drunk, but he's so talented. He can just walk in there, corkscrew himself on the ground with a couple of strikes, but then hit the ball (laughs) out of the stadium when he can barely even avoid puking from drinking too much. But if The Legend of Babe Ruth is at all accurate, that might be at least somewhat true. The way it's in the movie, it's so over the top. This movie probably should have been a comedy with some of those scenes, but that's the kind of stuff that he actually did. According to what I've heard long before I ever saw this movie and books I've read, he really could do those kinds of things where he could just party, not take care of himself. He definitely wasn't in good shape, whether he was fat or not. But to be able to do all these things when he wasn't focused the way that Lou Gehrig was. The St. Lou Gehrig, who was a natural and probably took care of himself and also probably worked out. The fact he could be as good or better than Lou Gehrig, considering all those factors, does go to show that he was... The natural... Yeah. <laughs> hey, we synced up pretty good there. <laughs> you listen to biographers talk about him, and one of the things they often cite is one of the reasons why I wish they had focused on it a little bit more, maybe from a different lens, is he did grow up poor, even before he was in that industrial school. This was a term I wasn't familiar with until I looked it up after watching this movie, too, because it wasn't quite a school for delinquent boys. You go to learn a trait, and it happened to be run by priests or brothers of some order. Okay. And before he was there, he grew up in a super poor part of Baltimore 
He got in with a bunch of like young kid gangs. He was drinking and smoking before he was seven years old, if not regularly. He had done it. He was so poor growing up that when he made it to the big leagues and he got a little bit of money in his pocket and then got a lot of money in his pocket, it was always that underlying fear of, I've known what it was to not Mm. have. I just want, I want, I want. And I'll share. And I'll share, right? He wasn't greedy about it. He was generous. Like Elvis apparently was too. And then the womanizing thing, I think, is also very clearly documented. And it's not just he was out partying until 3 a.m. When he was in his room, he was in his room almost never, it sounds like, alone. And oftentimes Mm -hmm. it was with multiple women at once, right? Three women at a time. One of his teammates from his Yankees days was talking about how after a game, he was in a shower. The water on his back got warmer and warmer and warmer. He just turned around and Babe Ruth had just started peeing on his back and he thought it was like the funniest <laughs> thing in the world. That's quite a stream. Yeah. You know, that high? <laughs> he was a weird dude, right? But he was a weird dude that did things that he thought were fun and he wanted to share that fun with other people. And he might do things that were totally out of bounds, but I don't ever get the sense that he ever did anything maliciously, nor in the stories I've ever read outside of this movie, was there ever an implication that he was a morose, super sad guy. He was a guy with demons. Mickey Mantle was similar then. Yep. Someone who doesn't think he's going to live forever, might as well get your living in while you can. And I think one of the disservices this movie does, aside from Ruth, is the way it handles the two women in his life. Because Mm -hmm. we do get a fair amount of time spent with his first wife. She just disappears. We never really get an explanation. Well, they do get divorced. And then she does die off screen. Yeah. They don't really give us that going away, nor the realization that she's died. And then Claire's just kind of there. That's not a great explanation of how that whole part of Ruth's life evolved either. Mm -hmm. Nor do they explain the fact that Claire was really the reason why Gehrig and Ruth were not friends for the entirety of their career. That apparently happened later on, by the way. It wasn't the entirety of their career is what I was reading before. It had something to do with Claire's daughter being dressed better than Ruth's daughter, Dorothy, Mm -hmm. and some comment that Gehrig made and Claire was upset about it. The movie suggests that Ruth was jealous of Gehrig, and that might have been true. But I think if you're the kind of guy that wants to win ballgames, and you know Ruth did, and you see this guy's going to help you win ballgames, there's got to be a point where you say, do what you got to do and make us better. Plus, he bats after me in the batting order. He's going to drive me in an awful lot of times, as Gehrig did. A lot of years, Gehrig had more RBIs than Ruth did. I don't know if I fully buy that Ruth didn't like Gehrig. And you watch Pride of the Yankees. Of course, that was showbiz, and there's an element of... Complete whitewashing in the Pride of the Yankees. A very good movie. That made the top 10 sports list on the, I've talked about before, right? The genres list. There's 10 movies. Pride of the Yankees was on there. Mm-hmm. This wasn't nominated, of course. Why would it be? It's not a good movie. Ba- <laughs> the Babe Ruth story wasn't nominated. Well, maybe it was. I don't think it was nominated. But the Pride of the Yankees does portray that Ruth and his scenes, but certainly Gehrig, just want to play baseball and want to win. Right. This movie suggests that the Babe would have been fine with Gehrig flaming out. The whole thing about don't hit the ball to right field. He's a left-handed hitter like you are. What are you talking about? He's going to hit the ball to right field more often than not. That's just stupid. Yeah. And then at some point, Ruth finally seems to have forgiven him. We don't really see entirely why. But then, do you think he wants to manage? Does he want to manage? Maybe he wants to be a manager. (laughs) Wants to be a leader. Wants to be a manager. Wants to be a leader. Wants to be a manager. When you want those things, you're probably going to have to be a little cooler with the star player who's now usurping you. One of the great things about the Yankees all time, I just love the way this worked out. It isn't anyone's deliberate choice. The Yankees obviously recruited, and they probably bought people and probably bought people off. But they had this era where, okay, they weren't a very good team, actually. There's that whole thing about beat the Yankees. The guy he buys the farm from, take out those Yankees. They weren't a threat to Boston. Boston was the star team in the 19-teens. The Yankees weren't yet. 
until they got Ruth in 1920. The Yankees then got good right away when they got Ruth and, of course, Gehrig a couple years later. Ruth retires. Gehrig's still playing. DiMaggio comes in. Gehrig gets ALS. He has to give it up. DiMaggio's still there. Yeah. And right around the time he's probably peaking, he says, I'm done, but Mantle's come in. Now Mantle overlaps with him. In that span of time, you had Ruth overlapping with Gehrig, overlapping with DiMaggio, overlapping with Mantle. Yeah. Man, to think that those four guys are all connected like that. It's pretty incredible. If they were just in a franchise, never mind the other guys the Yankees have had in the history of their franchise. Now it's Judge and Jeter and A-Rod and so many superstars. But those four guys overlapped in that, I don't know, 20 or 30 year period. That's why the Yankees are one of the most historic franchises in addition to all the championships they won. I've always thought about that 30, 40 year span as a similar kind of awe because of the way those superstars overlapped. I think the way the relationship between Gehrig and Ruth is portrayed in this movie is barely in it, by the way. Yeah, and I kind of also agree with you that if there was any dispute that arose because of this interaction later in the overlapping careers of the two guys, that's fine. If that creates a rift, that's a reason for that. But I find it so hard to believe that Ruth being who George Herman Ruth actually was would have been an ass to Gehrig immediately in the way that this movie portrays. Because that's just A, not his personality. B, he wasn't a fading star at the point when Gehrig was coming up. He was the guy. Getting better. He was getting better. And even when Gehrig really started to hit his stride, his third or fourth full season, he was still neck and neck, basically, with Ruth. It's not like Gehrig blew Ruth out of the water and nobody was paying attention to Babe Ruth anymore. Babe Ruth was still the spotlight guy. Mm. Like Lou Gehrig was not somebody that sought the spotlight and tried to shoulder him out of the reporter's eye or anything. The other thing I hated about it was the fact that they flashed the big title cards, spring training, 1922, and Gehrig is there, and that's when they first meet. Gehrig didn't play until 1923, mm. so what are you doing? A, they didn't need to have that interaction because it made no sense. It was pointless. And B, it was lazy research. And then later that same season, they flash 1922. I can't remember what team. I think they're playing against Pittsburgh maybe or something. When Ruth has the big blow up and starts screaming at people in the stands. Could have been Pittsburgh. That's the National League. That's right. But anyway, you know the scene where Ruth gets... Uh, Goes after the fan. He's thrown out at second. He's having a bad year at that point. He's really breaking down problems with Helen. That actually happened in 1925 in this season. Yeah, his numbers are, by his standards, pretty bad. But in that, they say, 1922, and the announcer says, the house that Ruth built, right? So they were playing in New York. But Yankee Stadium didn't open until 1923. The polo grounds were not the house that Ruth built. Mm -hmm. So again, I know it's a pedantic point, but it's the kind of lazy research that pisses me off. Why are you changing the year that that happened? It's not like that's hard to find out. The same thing is true, frankly, of the home runs for the kids story. Again, that happened in 1926, and they say it happened in 1922. Why? And part of the Yankees, that's in the World Series. And in that movie, Ruth seems to be just posing for the cameras. He leaves. Gehrig talks to the kid because Gehrig actually cares about the kid's well-being. The kid wants two home runs, and Gehrig does do it. Ruth hits one in that game, but then Gehrig hits two, which I don't think was accurate either. But in both movies, it pays off with the older version of that same kid talking to the guy that hit the home run. In this movie, it's Babe, and in the Pride of the Yankees, it's Lou. Did you like that, by the way, at the end? I I could see why they pay it off, and it's not impossible that something like this could happen, that the kid was inspired and decided he's going to learn how to walk. But then the notion that he would necessarily break through the crowd and that the superstar player would focus on him does seem illogical. We said an eight-man out. It's one of the most famous things that I guess sort of happened, even though they misquoted a little bit. The 
say it ain't so, Joe. Say it ain't so. Right. But the way it's portrayed in Eight Men Out is that they're all yammering and clamoring and trying to get Joe to say something. But then when the kid speaks up, Joe, Joe, everybody stops talking. Oh, wait, the kid wants to say something. This little kid, this Muppet who's (laughs) shining shoes wants to say something to Joe Jackson. Say it ain't so, Joe. So it isn't quite like that in these movies, Pride of the Yankees and The Babe, but similar enough that I do find it a little bit phony. Especially since he's walking off the field, down the tunnel, there's nobody there except somehow this guy from his past that has both found him and gotten into this player's area after the game. I'm conflating the two movies. Is that the end of this one? It's the end of this one. That's right, yeah. I was the kid. Here's the ball you gave me. You were the greatest ever. I see what they're trying to do, but it felt tacked on. Thank God that the guy he helped out by hitting those home runs and inspiring to walk again told him he's the greatest ever because that's what he needed to know that he was the greatest ever. Based on the way that they portrayed Babe Ruth in this movie, he might have needed to know that because he was a depressed guy. I was going to say something there, but a depressed (laughs) guy in this movie. But okay, since we touched on that kid thing, point of pedantry number two or three, depending how you talk about it, that didn't happen in 1922, as this movie says. It happened in 1926. It also happened during the World Series. The Yankees were in, I think it was St. Louis that year for the World Series. I think it was against St. Louis, but it was in New York, is what I was reading. Ruth apparently never met the kid in person. This is why I think they were in St. Louis, is because the kid's parents, or father at least, apparently sent a telegram or a wire, whatever you did in the 20s. It's just in. Kid very sick. (laughs) Needs signed baseball to get better. And that's basically what happens. My kid's real sick. He's the biggest fan. Can you do something to perk him up? And apparently Babe Ruth sent a signed baseball back saying, I'll hit you a home run, kid. And he did. But then I think either in the Babe Ruth story or maybe Pride of the Yankees, that became two home runs. Mm -hmm. And that's pervaded popular culture. If you're researching this movie and you're calling a biopic... Research the real thing. Don't yeah. just say, well, they did it in Pride of the Yankees, so we're going to assume it's true, or they did it in Seinfeld. Paul O'Neill's <laughs> told he was going to hit two runs from a sick kid, so we're going to assume it's true. Well, the best one, though, is in South Park, where it's, can I do anything for you, Jimmy, Bobby, Johnny? Can you make us run of cancer anymore? <laughs> <laughs> I would really like it if you play well and hit home runs, but I'd like it more if I didn't have cancer anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's more accurate, right? I know the kid was, in reality, very sick. But the reason he was in the hospital was because he was riding his horse, and the horse hit a pothole or something and fell. So the kid tumbled off his back, and then when the horse was trying to get its legs under it, it kicked him in the head. Yeah. So he wasn't sick. He had brain inflammation or something. The diagnosis appears to be kind of wonky because it was the 20s, and nobody's really sure what the heck was going on. In my head, I'm picturing, oh, here's a sick kid with cancer or something. No, he got booted by a horse. <laughs> it's like the most 1920s injury you could possibly have. He can't be that poor if he's on a horse. What do you think about Beirut being portrayed as crass in this movie, which he probably was, being raised the way he was? But this yeah. movie really does hit that on the head an awful lot, especially early on. Like the pull my finger stuff yeah, all the time? which is a running theme in this movie, like the I want to manage theme and I like to hit home runs theme. But when he's with the Red Sox, Harry Frizee is the owner. Right. This movie does show that they're not gangsters, or maybe they are gangsters, but they're pressuring Frizee to pay off. So he sells Ruth to the Yankees and makes a lot of money for it. If this is to avoid getting killed, I can understand why he would do that. But I read online that the real reason was Ruth wanted more money. He couldn't afford him, and he wanted to deal him because I can't keep him. I mentioned Juan Soto 20 or so minutes ago. 
He is now a San Diego Padre because the Nationals can't afford to keep him long-term, so they effectively sold him. They got players and good players, so they didn't sell him, I guess. But they ditched him right. in a way they wouldn't have wanted to. He's a kid still. He's barely been playing for only a couple of years. But they want to keep long-term players, and he's not one of the ones they're going to keep. That, I think, what I was reading is more what it was with Ruth and the Red Sox. So, yes, you lose this great player who wasn't Babe Ruth quite yet. Yes, he was called Babe Ruth. And, of course, that is a play on him being a baby. I think it's Dugan that names him that in this movie, right? So yeah. jumping is because he jumps to teams that'll pay him more. And Babe is because he's this innocent kid who can't speak in front of an audience and has to remember his lines that Harry Frazier told him to say earlier on. Fine, Babe isn't charismatic when he's younger. What do I think of his crassness? Like a lot of my gripes with this movie. He's King Ralph in some of those scenes is really what it comes down to. But it's not yeah. funny like King Ralph was at least trying to be. That might have been a good comparison because I think if it was played up more for humor and less like oh look at this sad pathetic guy that doesn't know how to be around people all he can do is have them pull his finger and so he farts it was doing him a disservice because i doubt that was really the way he was around people if it were true fine but the pulling the finger stuff you do that once i thought it was pathetic the first time they put that in a scene but they did it two or three times that didn't need to be a running gag the Babe stuff, apparently that came about way earlier than his Major League days. That came about when he was with Baltimore. He was a baby-faced young guy, or because the Baltimore Orioles literally adopted him out of the industrial school, so he was literally the baby of the team. Mm. There were a lot of Babes, too. Babe yeah. Herman's another one. I can't think of another one, but there's an other Babes in baseball history. It wasn't an uncommon nickname. This is not ragging on John Goodman. This is ragging on the choices of the director and the filmmakers generally. I just don't like the choices they made I agree. basically across the board. And Although Goodman apparently did not like his own performance in this movie. Really? For yeah. the same reasons, do you think? I think he thinks that he played this badly, and maybe it's Hiller's fault, the director, or the writers uh. that wrote it this way. But then Goodman had been acting long enough. He knew what he was doing. It's funny to think that Goodman actually has been in quite a few sports movies, even though you look at him and think, this is not an athlete. But he was the coach in Revenge of the Nerds. He's the football coach in Revenge of the Nerds. <laughs> but still, he's a It counts. But he's in Everybody's All-American, which we'll probably do one of these days, but that's Dennis Quaid. And we just did a lot of Dennis Quaid this year, so we'll push that off for a while yet. And I don't think he's an athlete. I think he's a scout or something, but he's in trouble with the curve that John... Oh, yeah. The Clint Eastwood... John Eastwood? The Clint Eastwood movie from several years ago, which I did not like, by the way. But there's a sports movie resume for John Goodman. I'm not sure what Goodman thought of this performance other than what I read that he didn't like it very much. But you know what really actually does track with that? When he was on Inside the Actor's Studio, the number of times when he would talk about something he had done in his career and he had achieved even then, and that was quite a few years ago, so many things he would go, eh, almost like, eh, oh, what was me type of stuff. And sometimes the audience would laugh and you could sense that John Goodman must struggle with himself all the time, probably because of the physique. He's not the typical example of a Hollywood star and his weight has fluctuated a lot of times. But this is a very accomplished actor. And whenever he did that episode of Inside the Actor's Studio, he was doing that sort of, yeah, self-pity me. And like he was almost bashing himself for doing it. It's interesting. The way that now you almost are supposed to indulge and you're feeling bad about yourself on social media, for example. Which is almost the way he's playing this character. Babe Ruth probably didn't think this hard. John Goodman probably should have gone into the character and just said, let it fly. And yeah. let Arthur Hiller cut out what doesn't work. Hiller maybe said something like, listen, here was a man who was derided at certain points for his size, took a lot of flack from people growing up and in his career. You know what that's like, John. Channel that. Because from what you're describing in the Inside the Actor's Studio kind of approach to his answers, that's not exactly the vibe that I got off of this, but it's pretty close. Yep. I did what I did then for reasons, but it wasn't the right choice. If he were to re-record 
the movie. Maybe he goes with the King Ralphie, let it rip kind of approach to it. I think that sheds a little bit of light for me, probably, on the performance in the mm-hmm. movie. This is another example, by the way. We said this when we did 42, Jackie Robinson's story, and other things we've covered. Ali, this probably should have been either a three-and-a-half-hour movie or yes. a miniseries. Babe Ruth, Jackie Robinson, Muhammad Ali, even more so, probably shouldn't be contained in two hours or two-and-a-half hours. In all of those cases, you're right. And this movie in particular being less than two hours. But it didn't feel quick, by the way. It was not exactly a... No, it was a slog. I was... Is it over yet? No, it's not over yet. Okay, fine. Yeah, and half the reason for that... I want to eat dinner. (laughs) I'm really hungry. I don't know why. (laughs) I want a hot dog. Why do I want a hot dog so badly? I'd like a few beers and more hot dogs. I wish they'd just spent time with the man. And I don't mean spend time with him when he's either spending three minutes partying or crying in the shower. He has a breakdown. And Claire comes in and basically saves him from that. He almost comes across as manic, right? Because yes. he's either peaking in baseball. The terrifying highs. The dizzying lows. No creamy medals. <laughs> that's right. He's the Homer Simpson the of Homer baseball. Sp- <laughs> yeah, because that's all we get. He's either at the peak or he's way down in the valley, weeping in the shower. Or attacking fans in the stands the way that Ty Cobb apparently did. That and getting suspended a lot that one year. All of the events portrayed in this movie... Even if they weren't slotted correctly in the chronology of his career, at least they happened. But to me, they lost so much meaning and so much luster. And for a movie that wants you, by the end of the movie, to, I think, feel sorry for the man, but feel reverential for his career, I didn't feel anything by the end of it because it felt like I hadn't gotten to know the man at all, basically. I agree. I would have liked to have seen his first true professional baseball in Baltimore. We don't get any of that. That into Boston. And I don't mean slugger because he wasn't a slugger in Boston either. He pitched far more than he hit. The first thing we hear about him in his first at bat is, oh, this is that kid that hits bombs. No, he was a pitcher. He is throwing left-handed. I'm assuming Goodman's not left-handed. But whether he is or whether he's not, that's the worst thing he does in the whole movie. His swing isn't very good, although it's okay. Not terrible. As a replica of Ruth, it was okay. And his gait when he runs... Tolerable, but his pitching is not just awful. I think they only do it once. It's not, or show it once. Not good, but each segment of his life could be an hour-long episode of a miniseries. Then you can spend some time with Babe Ruth when he's just being a normal human being yeah. and how he's actually dealing with all this stuff instead of just, I want to party, I'm so sad. I want to party, I want to party, I want to party, I'm so sad. There are a lot of myths about Babe Ruth, and the movie portrays what has been said or had been said because this movie's 30 years old. For an awful long time. The called shot home run in the 1932 World Series against the Cubs. It's even referenced in Major League. When Jake points to the wall, but then he bunts. It's a nice touch. (laughs) It's a great move. No one's done this since Babe Ruth in the 32 World Series. So anyway, the movie does seem to be shedding light on this, but it's been said that Babe Ruth didn't call his shot exactly. It was more a matter of saying, you got one strike on me. Holds up a finger. You got two strikes on me. And then he points at the pitcher. He might have said he was going to get the ball to center field. I don't think I really believe that. Garrick, who bats after him, right? So he's now in deck circle. He was as close as anybody could be. And he said something about how, well, only that big monkey could ever just predict he would hit a home run and then actually do it. But the fact he could do that when he's being pressured by the other team and cat called that much in the World Series and hit a bomb to straightaway center field, even if he didn't actually predict it, he's at least saying to them, I'm not out yet, stupid. You got two strikes on me. Even that's pretty cool. Yeah. So there's that, and there's, of course, also his last season when he's with the Boston Braves, when his numbers were dreadful because he wasn't in his 40s. By the way, he has some pretty good years when he got to be in his later 30s. When he's still with the Yankees, he was still hitting 41 and 34 home runs in his late 30s. 
is one year at the Boston Braves. He didn't even play 30 games. He had six home runs. Three of them were in one game. But they do show the first two times he hits home runs, he gets to first base, and a runner goes for him. You can't do that. Right. Nobody does that, even in our level of ball. If you hit the ball over the fence, we'd probably just say, if you can't run because you get a bad leg, who cares? This is rec ball. And we don't have fences in our leagues, but I have played in leagues where there's fences. If you can't run it out, no one's going to be that much of a pill about it. Right. But in Major League Baseball, if you can't run it out and you fall down and you can't keep going, I think you're out. But they have a guy that's standing there who just runs the rest of the way until the third home run. He runs it out himself because he wants to just take that curtain call. And that in the movie is portrayed as his last ever at bat, which it is not because the next day he struck out three times. Yeah. I would give a lot of slack to this movie, actually, if you're not really truly a baseball fan and you're not being pedants like we are. This is going to be pedantry the podcast more than most we've ever done, probably. But come on. You don't get somebody else to run for you after a home run. You're even more forgiving about it than I am to say if you're not a baseball fan, you'd be okay with it. Because I don't understand the point of that whole sequence. It's not just that they show that happening where Babe trots to first base in his first two home runs and somebody runs the rest of the way. They have players and fans catcalling him about it. That is definitely not a thing that ever happened in Babe Ruth's career. We know that. There's no rule allowing for it. If you're hitting home runs, especially Babe Ruth, the movie makes a point time and again of him saying, I like to hit home runs. You think at this stage of his career, he's going to pass up the opportunity to take the home run trot Mm -hmm. and wave to the fans? Even if it hurts. Even if it hurts. And we see him shuffling and stuff, but we see him walking around. It's not like he can't walk. You don't have to run. Right. Witness Miguel Cabrera in 2022. That guy cannot run. If he hits a line drive to right field, he might get thrown at it first sometimes because he will not run. <laughs> By 20 feet. By 20 feet. But there ain't no pinch running or rather there's no, I'm going to trot slowly to first base and somebody's going to run the west away for me. So the same thing holds true of Babe Ruth. If Babe Ruth runs to first base and he doesn't complete his home run trot, he never scores. The run doesn't count. You can't have somebody do that for you. I don't understand why any of that was included because the whole purpose of that final scene was to say, he's a little bit washed up. He wants to be a manager. Nobody will let him. So he's playing out his days with the Boston Braves. He's not having a great time of it, but look, he had three home runs and now he had that glorious walk-off. And like you said, that wasn't accurate, but in the movie, the glorious walk-off. So why did you spend all that time portraying him not running the bases anymore? I you think. could just show him hit the ball, fans react. Yeah. And it's not even at home. It's in Pittsburgh. It's Forbes Field. Before the first at-bat that we see of Babe Ruth, there's the fan that's drinking out of the Mickey in the stands, yeah. and he leans forward to Dorothy <laughs> Ruth and says, I remember seeing your dad hit balls out of blah, blah, blah. Nobody hits it out of here. He's the actor from Home Alone that plays the gangster in the video that Kevin keeps no playing. No way. It's the same guy. <laughs> so when he's saying that to Dorothy and he leans over and starts laughing, all I can hear is, my Tommy gun. <laughs> Get your <laughs> ugly, yellow, fat, right field butt out yeah. my door. <laughs> it's the same guy, Ralph something or other. So we mentioned the two women in his life, Kelly McGillis, who does play Claire Ruth. She was in Witness and Top Gun in a couple of years there mm-hmm. with Harrison Ford and Tom Cruise. Height of her career. Beautiful woman, pretty good in those movies. But then she fizzled, maybe because she had kids around the early 90s, I believe it was. I was also looking her up, and something about how she's a lesbian now has come out that way, so maybe that hurt her. She was also in The Accused with Jodie Foster, which won Foster an Oscar. So what a career in the 80s, and just, I don't know. And she's fine, as Claire. She's got a certain amount of danger and coolness. Both women are good-looking, but she's definitely the one that has more of the vavavoon quality. Trini Alvarado is very pretty in this movie, as Helen, has quite a bit of screen time. But she's a pill 
just like she is as the oldest sister in Little Women a couple years later. <laughs> okay. I'll take your word for that because I never saw Oh, you should see it. That's my favorite version of Little Women. It's not like Trini Alvarado is bad in this movie or that one, but she's just made to be the pill. It's hard to blame the actor for that because it's just the way the part is written. I didn't really love the way that the movie handled the fact that Helen dies in 1929 or something and then Ruth marries Claire. The other thing I really didn't like, especially for a movie that wasn't shying away from the depressing elements of Babe Ruth's personality at all, they didn't really focus on the fact that when he adopts Dorothy... It's his kid? Yeah, apparently that was his kid out of wedlock with the housekeeper or something. The movie even seems to suggest he's paying for this kid. Exactly. No matter whose kid it actually was, in reality, he's paying for it. Yeah, it's not like the movie handled it in a particularly tasteful way anyway. And like I said, they certainly lean hard into the Babe Ruth as a bit of an ass kind of element. So why they shied away from that? I don't know, because even in the 90s, that was apparently a very commonly understood thing. Interestingly enough, and I think we see this a little bit later on in the movie when Dorothy's growing up and we see her in the stands, we see her in the dugout when he's with Boston. Whatever his faults and demons as a man, they still had a good relationship as far Mm -hmm. as I understand it. For a long time. So much of this guy's life was just not portrayed in this movie at all. And he doesn't seem to enjoy himself through a lot of the film. And when he's in the country house with her, he has the ants in his pants. But six months has passed. I guess it's the off-season, so he's not playing baseball. And he's still in Boston, too. That farm, I believe, is supposed to be in Boston. He hasn't been sold to the Yankees yet, so he's not even in the big time of the smaller town of Boston. He's out in the middle of nowhere, and she wants a family, and she wants a quiet life, and he wants to be out on the town doing cool things, living a life he didn't have before when he was a kid and no money. Now he's got all those things, let alone when he goes to New York and has them even more. He doesn't even know that career and that future is in store for him, but it, of course, is a couple years or whatever it's supposed to be later on. They do suggest he buys the farm for her, actually, and they're not married. We don't actually see them get married anyway, but they were actually married when it suggests in 1916, I believe, is when they get the farm. They've been married for a few years. Did they say it was a 200-acre farm also? Oh, was that many? Good Lord. Not a farmer either. What a waste of space. There was a comment about him mending fences, and he said, no, I've got an old dude that I pay to do that Mm -hmm. on the farm. So I think... It probably was a working farm. He was eating all day long. Except when he was chopping wood in a Rocky Four-style montage. loses weight. He gets back in shape. I think that's supposed to be the season where... What would it be here? Let's look on the baseball reference where he was really bad by his standards for that one year. And then he came back and had a huge year. It might have been 1922. No, it was this year, wasn't it? It was 1925 and then 26. Yeah, I think that was 27. That's when he really hit his prime. He was 31 in 1926. He had 47 home runs. Then the 60. And then he was down a little bit after that, but still had all the black ink. But yeah, in 1925, by his standards, it was a bad season. And that's when he dropped a lot of weight and got to be a better player. And also battling so much with Miller Huggins, the manager, in so much of the film. But Huggins is a one-dimensional manager in this movie. I think the guy that has a lot more depth, maybe the Babe Ruth TV movie I talked about with Stephen Lang, Mm -hmm. shows more depth with him and their relationship is different. I think it's that where Ruth finds out that Huggins dies and he's playing the game. Your attention, please. Miller Huggins has died, and Ruth comes off the field and doesn't break down coming out of right field, but reacts more than he does in this film. So Bruce Boxleitner does play Jumpin' Joe Dugan. He was in Tron about 10 years before this, and then Tron Legacy, the sequel, many years later, and a lot of TV stuff, including Babylon 5. And James Cromwell, he is Brother Matthias. We don't see him again after the early scenes when Babe is a kid. Well, I guess a young man. He's a teenager. But he was actually in Revenge of the Nerds with John Goodman. They don't share scenes, but he's one of the nerds' fathers driving them to school. And, of course, Goodman's the football coach. 
And he's also the warden in The Longest Yard, so we'll probably cover him again at some point when we do the remake, meaning the 2005 Adam Sandler version of The Longest Yard. He's always going to be Zephyrm Cochran to me, mm-hmm. right? In Star Trek First Contact. That's right. Mentioned Arthur Hiller directed this already. John Fusco was the writer. He was also a producer on this movie. He wrote the two Young Guns films around the same time as this. And he also wrote The Highwaymen, which is more recently Kevin Costner, the Bonnie and Clyde guy. What's his name again? Hamer, I believe, is who Costner plays. So he's written some pretty good films. Not this one. Not well written. <laughs> but then how about these names behind the scenes, too? The cinematographer Haskell Wexler, who shot a lot of classic films. Okay. And also the composer Elmer Bernstein. He was a legend in composing. He's the guy who wrote a ton of scores, but two big ones. Magnificent Seven and The Great Escape. That's interesting. Or... Yeah, it's interesting that you say that, because this is one of those movies where the music did not impact me positively. Me neither, but still a big name. Big name. And the reason I say it's interesting is because in this era, the 1920s, this is big band, right? This is where you could have really, if you're a composer for the movie, had some fun, especially in some of those scenes of just shooting the game action, watching Babe Ruth hit a home run, really play up the brass instruments, the roaring 20s element of it. I don't think the movie does. For a guy that is well accomplished and has some really... Legendary scores. Yeah, legendary scores. Right? Just things that are in popular culture for all time. And make it, how about this, fun? Yeah. So that's surprising. The cinematography, I guess, was fine. One of the things I thought was reasonably well done, not so much in the stadiums necessarily, but just in general, was capturing a sense of the 20s and the style. And Costumes were pretty effective. Costuming. It looked fine for the most part. They shot mostly in Illinois, by the way. I think a minor league park in Illinois. They did use Wrigley for some scenes, too. What about the portrayal of sport? Because I think it's pretty terrible. Goodman's pitching especially. I don't think his swing is all that great either. He does get some of the same things. Apparently, when Ruth would miss a ball, when he swung and missed, he would corkscrew himself from the ground. The way you see people who aren't balanced. Mr. Miyagi taught us all, need balance. Well, as a baseball hitter, you have to have balance. But I guess Babe Ruth actually did swing that way. Goodman overdoes it way too much, and he does it a lot. Even when Ruth is playing very well and having his huge years, his MVP caliber years, when he misses a ball, he spins around nine times before he falls into the dirt. Never mind when he's drunk or about to puke. So the portrayal, in that sense, I guess is somewhat accurate, but it's also irritating. It also isn't cool to see that he almost always, even when he connects, his head's not in the ball. You can't hit when you're facing the sky. Yeah, that's true. There were moments when it worked, but I think we've seen so many better representations of not just baseball, but baseball from this era. Eight Men Out, I thought, did a way better job of portraying the sport than this did. The Natural did a way better job than this. And even if those eras aren't lining up exactly, you know what I'm talking about, like pre-modern baseball. The way that they shot the games, and I get why you do this, because the actors can't pull off a sequence if you're shooting it from a distance. They can't do it, or it's not going to look believable. So you have a bunch of tight shots or cutaway shots where the ball's just flying through the air or something. It didn't look like a true play was happening. I never got the feeling like I was in the middle of a game. Babe Ruth just hit a home run. I don't know what that means. It has no <laughs> impact one way or the other. Usually right out of the whole stadium. Yeah. Which people did not do very often back then, even Babe Ruth. One of the funny things that did make me laugh a little bit in this movie was when Brother Matthias is talking to the guy from the Baltimore Orioles when they're trying to literally adopt Babe Ruth out of the industrial school. When, again, he's 19. He's not a kid anymore. 
Brother Matthias says, yeah, he's playing in this league of schools, I guess. And he hit a home run 327 feet. I measured it. They were playing in some cavernous stadiums in this era of baseball. Lazy fly to right. Maybe that was far for the era, but apparently Lou Gehrig was routinely hitting balls like 450 feet to right field. People were bombing it by the late 20s, early 30s. So why did the movie make a point of pointing out 327 feet? It was a very strange And I think we talked about it in Cobb, where he said, I can hit home runs too. And if I played in Yankee Stadium, my sister hit the ball 297 feet. But the point of Cobb was, hit them where they ain't. And they said that exact line in this movie too, which is the way I've always tried to play the game when I played softball. If you can hit the ball over the fence, nobody's going to catch it. I think he says that in this movie as well. But that is the way to play baseball. Hit the ball in the gaps and run. But yes, the portrayal is pretty bad. Now, as for a score factor, Alvarado is lovely. McGillis is beautiful. But John Goodman does not put very many people, shall we say, in the mood. (laughs) He puts himself in the mood a lot. And there's an awful lot of loving in this movie. There's a scene, actually, I think it's when he first goes to New York. And he's having that huge party in his suite. Yes. And there are people in the bathroom. And Trini Alvarado comes out. She says, there are people in the bathroom. And I read online that she says, there are people blanking in the bathroom. I remember she said that, and I actually just quickly scrolled back. Yes, she does say that. They just didn't have her say. Oh, the mouth is moving, but the words ain't there. (laughs) There are people doing something in the tub. But the movie is not really a scorable kind of film. I would give it a 4 to 10. I just didn't like it. We've had a pretty good conversation, but because it's about Babe Ruth, it's impossible to have a bad conversation about the greatest player, if not the greatest, one of the greatest players of all time. And most people who know about baseball say that he is the greatest player of all time, partly because he has all the numbers, the black ink we've talked about, being a pitcher first, so accomplished with that. World championships, that has to matter. you got to win. I think if you're going to be talked about as the greatest player of all time, you've got to be a world champion. Ted Williams wasn't. He's in the conversation. But Ruth has all of those things. But he also is the name of the sport. So Michael Jordan has the black ink in basketball and probably still is the name of the sport. But Ruth and Jordan are probably the two examples and they're outliers in other sports where who's the greatest player? They may not be the most recognizable name in their sport. Babe Ruth is the name of maybe any sport. People will say the Babe Ruth of wrestling, the Babe Ruth of basketball, the Babe Ruth of screenwriting. Yep. Right? They don't say the Michael Jordan usually of those things. They don't say the Muhammad Ali of those things, as famous as those guys are. So he's the most famous player of all time, probably, a name that any regular person who follows anything in the world knows, but also maybe literally, because of the numbers and the achievements and the championships, the greatest player, both the greatest and the best. I used to say Ty Cobb was the best player and Ruth was the greatest player. Now, after all this time, it's hard not to say Ruth is both of those things. I think that's exactly right especially a hundred years on from when, at least when he was beginning to play the game, right? In the late teens, early twenties, that a player of that vintage could still be so well known. If you said to somebody who's the great Bambino or who's the Sultan of Swat. the nicknames, yeah. I know he had a lot of nicknames, some better known than others. Even those two nicknames, beyond just the Babe, which in and of itself was a nickname, I guess, but Mm -hmm. the Sultan of Swat or the great Bambino, I'd wager more people than not would probably say as Babe Ruth. And that's a pretty impressive accomplishment for a guy that broke into the sport over 100 years ago. Even if you don't know a lot of details about the life, you probably know the legend of the player and maybe some of the highlights, like pointing out to center field at the very least. And I think if you're really interested in the movie, then you're probably a sports fan and you probably know at least a little bit more about Babe Ruth than that. So I don't think it's unfair to be pedantic about some of the more egregious elements of this movie. But even if you're not, even if you're just looking at the base level, the biggest problem with this movie will always be the fact that it finds almost no way to have fun. 
And for a character like Babe Ruth, that's unforgivable, frankly. Yes. Beyond being unforgivable, the movie portrays itself, like you said, on the poster and everything as being Babe Ruth with a kid on his shoulder and a big smile on his face. That is not the vibe of this movie at all. Mm -hmm. So I would go even lower than you would and give it maybe a three out of ten. And I'm only doing that because it is still kind of fun to see some of these moments portrayed on screen, however poorly. B, I've got a lot of respect for John Goodman in his career. And even if he doesn't view this as one of his best performances, I'll give him that. And C, there were a few things done okay beyond portraying the era and stuff. I did kind of like small moments like Claire and Babe Ruth in the car where she's reading the newspaper. It's a crying shame that this company is naming their candy bar after you and claiming it's after Grover Cleveland's daughter, which is true. They named it Baby Ruth and then said, oh, no, it's named after Grover Cleveland's daughter. Meanwhile, Cleveland had been out of office at that point for like 40 years. His daughter had been dead for like 17 years. Yeah, you named it after that kid and not after the guy who is currently the biggest name in all of sport. Sure. Mm-hmm. But of course, that's a way to get out of Babe Ruth suing them for infringing on his name rights. So little moments like that, they're kind of fun. But it's a bad movie, man. It mm-hmm. just is. Because it could have been so much better and should have been so much better. Exactly. All right. That was the disappointing The Babe. In two weeks, we'll get back on the racetrack, but in a very unexpected way. The Kenny Rogers racing movie Six Pack is free on YouTube. So, Kenny, here we come. Diane Lane and Anthony Michael Hall are also in that film, looking at the credits. And I saw that when I was probably 10 years old, and I've never seen it since. So this is going to be an interesting one for me. You know I'm a big Kenny Rogers fan, generally speaking. Everybody knows. Yeah. The secret to Chris is like a Kenny. He's watching a little bit of Six Pack on YouTube just yesterday. I'm often licking my greasy fingers, staring out the window, going, <laughs> Kenny, Kenny. But I don't know how I'm going to feel about this movie. It might be necessary just to get through the watch and the record to actually have a six-pack on hand to burn through (laughs) just to watch it. We'll see. Something very different. A singer is the lead of a racing movie. All right, we're on Twitter. I'm at MovieFiend51. Chris is at ScoringAtMovies. The email address is ScoringAtTheMovies at gmail.com. And you can find us on all the podcast avenues you like to download podcasts. Well, for the love of God, babe, take it easy. If you'd gotten more sleep and taken better care of yourself, maybe you would have actually succeeded in this sport.